Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I am Chapin Hemingway, joined by Lee Carlo, but no Jeremy Fisk. He's busy yeah, making movies. Uh, and we understand we always miss him and we're looking forward to this being over, although I think he might be jumping on to a new one, so... Um, you know how it is. Oh, the biz. I thought you meant we were looking forward to this podcast being over. Oh, no, 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 never. I want these <laughs> to go on forever. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about Paul Greengrass's new film, News of the World, which we had to rent for 20 bucks that we don't own. So interesting. Um, and then we're going to uh, we're going to have a little discussion, Lee, about uh, some ideas of how we could save the theatrical experience. Um, I have an idea and I hope you have a couple, too. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, and I'm here tonight to read the news from across this great world of ours. So they pay you to tell stories. I ain't never heard of that as a thing a man can do. It's not a rich man's occupation, as you can see. Hey! Stop! Stop! I'm not gonna hurt you! Do you understand English? Dolly, I call but uh friend. Says your name is Johanna Leonberger. Indians took you when they attacked your family six years prior. The mother, father, and sister were well, they passed. Soli, um since we've been doing the podcast again, which we started in late early 2018 i think that's when we started um there's been one there's been something i've been wrestling with and i'd say that that thing is that i sometimes i you know i want to deliver as objective and unbiased opinion as possible um but i think sometimes i and i think you do too and our 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 compatriot jeremy who is missing and i think probably for good reason on this podcast is probably the most uh, objective, unbiased of the three of us. Uh, I think he, like his, like his phrase, a movie is a movie is a movie. I think that's a really smart way to look at movies, but I think you and I have trouble doing that sometimes. I also think Jeremy doesn't get bogged down on little things the way I especially do, and I think you're also guilty of it. Yeah, times. exactly. I think I think with you, it's the little things that annoy you, and it's like if a movie's set in space, you got to do a lot of things wrong to, to, <laughs> to mess it up for me. But uh, so... Um, but I, I like that phrase, a movie is a movie is a movie, because it mm-hmm. means we're, we're, we're judging a movie for what it is. We're trying not to be prescriptive. We're trying to, we're trying to sort of just, just judge it for what it's given us. Um, and I think with smaller movies, uh, I think the one successful example I can think of is something like Eighth Grade. But we did a lot of them, I think, around Fixie Season, where there's just these small movies. They're very good, but they're not particularly ambitious uh, in their filmmaking and in their, and even in their, um, their, 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 their tones and themes um thematically ambitious um and i wrestle with those because i i I like to see ambition in movies i like to see movies digging into the depths of the human condition and it's not fair for me to judge these movies the way i do because you know sometimes you know people like kind of nice little movies and and you know, um, plenty of movies like, for example, the the two movies you reviewed last week try to dig those depths of human emotion and don't do so successfully, at least from from, you know, depending on which movie you talk to and which one of us uh, you talk to. So 
in a related question, I, I, I often find myself feeling this way about Paul Greengrass's films. Now, I, I really admire the way uh, Paul Greengrass makes movies. I like his style. I find it invigorating. I love watching his movies. I'm always excited for his movies. I think his movies are good for the most part. But I feel like with I think the notable exception of one of his first movies, Bloody Sunday, I always I, I sometimes come out of his films and I sort of ask myself, why did he make this movie? Even a movie as much that I like as much as Captain Phillips, I'm sort of like, what was the point of watching that? What what did what did Paul Greengrass want me to take away from that from that experience? And I'm wondering if you have a similar experience with Paul Green, Greengrass. Do you have a similar feeling about movies and their sort of ambitious? I guess in this case it would be thematic um, pursuits. Well, I th- I did I do think it's interesting that you bring up Greengrass, and we're talking about this movie. News of the World, which is set in the American West, um, because I think it particularly pertains to this movie in that his movies a lot of times feel like an outsider's perspective, and and we're critical of that at times of like foreign directors making, you know, truly American movies. And the American Western is obviously one of the one of our kind of genre, the one of the genres that we feel like we own, and um, so I think you could probably apply that to some of his other movies, like maybe a Captain Phillips or uh, United 93 or something like that, or, or uh, 22 July uh, movies about significant things that happened someplace that he's not from. And maybe that's a good thing at times, you know, an outsider's perspective can be unobjective. Um, so that can be good, but maybe it means they lack ambition because there's, I don't know, I don't want to use the word fear, but maybe there's a hesitancy to feel like you're stepping on something that isn't yours. Does that make sense? Like to, to try to put your opinion on something or to make a point about something that maybe you're not in a position to make a point about. And the alternative is to just try to tell the story as objectively as possible. And I think you're right. I think that makes his movies entertaining for sure. Um, I don't think I have as much of a issue with the lack of the point of view that his movies have as maybe as you do. I also don't look forward to his movies as much as it sounds like you do. So maybe I just kind of fall somewhere in the middle, but yes, to answer your question, I think, I I do want a movie to try to have something to say. And if it is saying something, it needs to make sure that it does it well. I, I would prefer it not say something than try half-assed to do it. And, yeah, I think maybe I haven't thought a lot about it. I know you've mentioned this before about Greengrass, that his movies sort of lack that point of view. And maybe that's true. And maybe the ones that I like best are the ones that just sort of try to tell the story. Like I actually really like United 93, um, not exactly a rewatchable movie, but it's right, really well, well done, and it's a it well. Is, it is very well done. But again, and I, I at the end of it, I was like, why did why did he want us to watch that movie? Yeah, and that's my point. I think it's like essentially, if any, if if there's a director out there that is very suited to just be the guy that retell that tells the story that it, that does a retelling, then Greengrass might be it. 
Right. And I think he's a bold filmmaker from that perspective, from like a, a stylistic perspective. He, you know, he, I, I love what he does with the camera. I love the way he tells the story. I just, I, yeah, I don't, I, I, I miss that point of view. I uh, See, I don't have as much of a problem with it in, in some of the movies you mentioned or that we've mentioned, like in Captain Phillips or, um, or United 93, or I, I guess maybe even this movie. I just think, they just don't it doesn't allow movies to be great as a result and and one of the kind of questions i had for you about this movie and and maybe more broadly about the american western at this point is like what can someone do to make a western great and if the answer is nothing really anymore which is probably not the answer but if it is then greengrass sort of just like decided to tell a story that takes place in the american west yeah and that yeah. <laughs> and like okay that's fine I guess so. We'll watch it, and then that'll be that, and we'll move on. Yeah, not to put all my cards on the table, but yeah, and you, I think you and I feel pretty similar. So is that going to well, do it for this edition of the Get Your Fill Fix podcast? Well, I wrote I wrote something else down because it's another kind of term that that uh, I know Jeremy has used and I've used in the past, and it's it's very often in a negative sense, and I don't totally mean it this way with this movie, but it's paint by number, and this movie just kind of follows the beats of a Western. And that, again, there's nothing bad about that. It's just, what are we, like, it's just fucking fixie season. What are we doing here? Like, yeah. <laughs> got better things to do. Yeah, we do. We do I, have I enjoyed this do. movie fine. There, like, I, there were some things I'd like to talk about that I think were really good. And well, yeah, but, but ultimately, but, but, this but, was not a, like, a movie that was impressive. No, no. But, and, and, but, uh, I, like I've said this before, I, I don't think there's a problem holding these people to a higher standard. I mean, you have Paul Greengrass and Tom Hanks and a Western and kind of an intriguing idea about this guy who travels the West and reads the news. And he's a former captain from the Union Army. But or from is the, that an from intriguing the, idea from the Confederate Army? I think it's I think what we've we've seen, we've seen the I mean. Every it's seemingly every Sergio Sergio Leone movie is about like the former Confederate captain who like <laughs> you know is looking in Spain for uh, you know somebody, but uh, we we've seen that. But what I think is interesting is this idea, and I think it's topical because it has something to do with you know the the role of the media. And I mean I'm just rolling my eyes saying that, but you, you know you could you could see that there are some parallels to what's happening yep. now in modern politics with the media, and and he's he's bringing this news to uh, different parts of Texas, and some of the people are like you know read read stuff that's more relevant to us, or some of the news is you know about the train that's coming. Some of it's good news, bringing bringing the the train to to the Dallas area or. Uh, tell us about what's happening. You know, don't, we don't want to know. We don't care about what's happening. Um, uh, you know, on the other side of Texas, we want to know what's happening yeah. to us. Or uh, on the other side of that, he kind of he he nearly incited a, a revolution in a small, oppressive, you know, mining town of or or Buffalo town rather, uh, by telling a hopeful story from a. Um, yeah, a mining town. From a mining town in Pennsylvania. And I think that is intriguing. That idea is interesting. At least it's new. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's not as intriguing as you thought, but that was sort of secondary to the primary totally. soil, which is the 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 story of this uh orphaned 
Um, I, I believe she's German or Norwegian or not Norwegian. She's she's German, yeah, yeah, a German kind of immigrant who was adopted by uh, the Kiowa tribe and then was left for dead. Or I I forget exactly what happened to her, why she was, but eventually, yeah, Tom but Hanks picks her up and sort and, of a tired storyline in westerns as well though um but yeah i look i like the the parallels that you that you can draw to modern day i kind of always think that's interesting when it's done well in a movie um again something that maybe has gotten a little tired at this point this year um we're seeing a lot of that a lot of movies set in a prior time period that are drawing parallels very relevant parallels to things that are going on and that's important in one sense and very interesting and um you know, uh, eye-opening in some cases, but ultimately, like, okay, we get the point here in this movie. But that that's also not really the movie's fault. Like, that's just kind of part of the story it's telling. But it is totally secondary, this news of the world aspect of it. And I like also the, the idea that he's this ex-soldier, so he, you know, can get around safely on that, but he's also, he's just delivering the news, so he's not a threat to anybody. And it's sort of like a hall pass of sorts that he has as he's you know dealing with these dangers along the the you know american southwest and that stuff's like all kind of like interesting in bits and pieces and then you know this movie lacks really anything else that you can hang your hat on except for maybe a performance or two because greengrass doesn't really do anything that we know him for this is a out of style for him you know, it's actually like I said, paint by number. There's the wide shots of the, the, um, the you know, American West, and there's these tense life and death moments, and all this stuff that we've seen before, done very plainly. Meanwhile, it's a story that is just kind of always not doesn't always feel like it's all in on. Mm. Yes. Yes. I. I agree with you for the most part. I, I, I was expecting, you know, you, you, you don't, you think of Paul Greengrass as this kind of immediate modern filmmaker, you know, like both his, like his style is, you know, this sort of handheld kind of frantic cutting type of stuff. And I'm glad he didn't do that exactly here, but I was hoping he would bring a kind of modern sensibility to a Western, right? And it would have been cool to see like something like you don't want the Bourne movies, but like no. it would have been kind of cool to see a little more handheld work, like stuff that we just don't typically see in a western. That would have been really interesting. Yeah, it would, and 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 for the most part, they didn't. I mean, I I like this movie. It's well told. It's, yeah, it's fine. It's yeah. yeah, it's it's totally fine. It's. I would even say it's better. Than that. I would say it's good. It's. Yeah, it is good. It, and and I think I think the it's got beautiful scenery, and I think there are some the the little interesting flourishes we get is we spend a lot of time on on the coat or on the whatever that's called the horse and buggy that they the are wagon, yeah. yeah the wagon that they are uh traversing texas in and i liked all that and and this just that sense of the open road i thought that it gave a really nice creation of that um what did you think of the ending uh predictable yeah was is probably the word, first word that comes to mind um a lot of this movie was predictable unfortunately and, and that's kind of where what triggered my thought on like what can a filmmaker do at this point to make this genre new or unique like what can they do with the story because you think about maybe the, the the last western that um we talked about 
you know, surrounding Fixie Seasons was Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Right. And what made that unique was that it was six uh, different stories, shorter stories, um, made in kind of anthology style. But all of those stories were, you know, for the most part, things we've seen before. I mean, all Gold Canyon, I guess, was was kind of a different type of story, but ultimately still like a prospector searching for gold. Like there's not a lot of stories left to tell in this genre. So what can a filmmaker do to make a movie that isn't predictable, that isn't well, I don't agree something with we've that, seen though. before? I don't think, I mean, I guess they're, I guess you're limited in a Western by the setting and the kind of, the sort of story storytelling you anticipate around it. But I don't know. Is it, is it that predictable? Well, this movie was, and I think that's partly because of the road that it went down, which is kind of a typical Western storyline where you have, uh, you know, a seasoned character traveling the the road on his wagon and picks up uh, sort of a, a character that is new to the situation and that p- throws a curveball in everything that's happening and his plans and her plans and and kind of the plans that the story that the story would have had otherwise and that's a that's a storyline in any genre but i mean we just knew where this was going and i i spent a good portion of this movie trying to wonder what could happen in what could happen next that would surprise me and i couldn't find a direction for it to go so I'm almost not holding the movie at fault for being predictable because, again, this is the story that it told, and it almost seemed like it had to end the way that it did. It was a little eye-rolling. I'm not sure it was totally earned. I'm not sure it was totally believable, but hmm. it was predictable. Um, yeah, yes, yes. And I think I think they tried to give us a little bit of... I just thought the sort of drama was crammed in there. At, and I guess by the end, I mean the scene where he returns and, and, and meets, um, his, his colleague from the war, um, Bill camp. Uh, and, and, and he, we, we find out that this wife who is referenced a couple times who he left in San Antonio died. He knew she was dead. Um, and I was sort of, I, I was sort of distracted by the ages of everybody at, at that point. Like, I understand Tom Hanks is playing a it was is probably supposed to be playing a younger a younger man, but uh, he's like in his sixties. But he was a he was five years ago was a captain in the in the <laughs> Confederate Army. I don't. I mean, does that make sense? So you're talking about the scene, really? I guess it would be the second to last scene before he goes back to right uh, Helena Zengel's character. Right. They talk about the war and the impact it had on them, and that they. That, uh, it was a very, they didn't it was very for, no country for old men type of scene, like a wannabe it, scene. To absolutely, me. absolutely was. <laughs> and, and I was, <laughs> yeah. So I thought of that. Um, uh, I was, I was reminded a lot of the Coens in this movie actually. Now that I mentioned that, but huh. um, well, young girl, older man. It's just, it's a little bit well, like that's true grit. The, that's the next uh, something I want to get to also, but. Um, but yeah, that was obviously the first thing. Even before I saw the movie, it was the first thing that came to mind. Um, yeah, that. So I, I said the end was predictable. I was thinking, uh, in particular, of the scene when he goes back to Helena Zengel's character. But uh, the scene you're referring to, I guess, the word that would come to mind would be forgettable because I forgot that scene. Okay. Um, didn't entirely forget that scene. I just kind of 
it's not on the top of my mind with this movie. And there's a lot of scenes like that throughout this movie. There's also some good scenes in this movie, but they're good on a scene by scene basis. Um, they feel forced the shootout with those kind of outlaws up in the Hills, that kind of first action scene. Yeah. Good scene. Right. But like felt very forced on us. Like it, it went, it escalated really quickly. This is like this guy, essentially decides that he just wants to take this young girl so he can, you know, pimper. I don't know what they called it back then. Right. Um, sell her at a brothel. Tom Hanks isn't going to let that happen, so they kind of um, dis- distract him, or they have they have the police distract him, and they run away, and then they chase after him, and there's a shootout, which is, is a, you know, a intense, entertaining scene. But it just, like, <laughs> it just escalated very quickly. It felt very forced and unearned. Um, and ultimately not a sufficient like piece to move the movie forward. And I felt like there was a lot of that in this movie. Yeah. And it was long too. It was a long, long shootout. Um, and I loved the filmmaking, but yeah, it was sort of like, well, okay. And then it was over and it had really no, you know, just kind of kept them from, from moving. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I, like I said again, I don't you know not to be prescriptive, but I did find the news of the news of the world aspect of this film to be interesting. I liked those scenes a lot. I thought they were, and I liked the way um, there's a scene later in the film where Hanks and um, uh, Helena Zengel's character ride into this uh, sort of development along the sketchy road through Texas, and there's a sort of tyrannical leader who's controlling the town, who's paying everybody to, you know, massacre Buffalo and they're harvesting Buffalo skins. And, uh, he, he's clearly, he's a rather one dimensional villain, but clearly has got it out for Hanks or wants to test him or whatever and, and forces him to read the news. And they, they, they do it. They kind of go about their business and, uh, Helen Zangle collects the, the dimes, um, from everybody and he instead of reading the pre-written sort of odyssey of this leader that was given to him he reads another story and it's this hopeful story as you mentioned about the uh, Pennsylvania miners and then before he can finish the uh, the guy and his goons kind of break up the break up the the news reading and they get in a fight because the, the people want to hear it. And it, like, if it, it feels like kind of what this film could have been. Yeah. I'm glad that condensed that. in like 10 minutes. And yes. Um, yeah, go ahead. Cause that's the only scene where the news of the world seems to play in, in any way, shape or form to the rest of the movie. Right. And like, in theory, I agree with you. Like this idea about this character who kind of goes around reading the news. Like there was this one moment in, when he goes to that final scene where he's talking to his old war buddy about his wife that I just kind of like, you know, it it was sort of an epiphany moment where I was like, God, back then, like he's traveling all this time, like, and his wife died. It's not like he got word of that right away. Like the, all the way that news traveled then was so slow. There's obviously no phones. And like, even if you get something printed or get something in the mail, like it's so far removed from what's happening. So that's that's just kind of an interesting look back at a time period 
And so this idea of the news of the world, this guy that literally just like travels and he says at the beginning of all his, his kind of events that like, you know, you guys are busy, you don't have time to read the news, so I'm going to do it for you. And like, it, it's very much like they're them going to the movie theater. Like it's their version right. of that. Right. But it has just nothing to do with what happens in this movie. I, no. I failed to see any connection between his relationship and his task to bring Helena Zangles Johanna uh, to some place for her to live. He's essentially bringing him to her only family that they know she has. And like how that interrupts his work, which it doesn't really, it seems like he talks about how he can't take her. And it's like, I guess he doesn't want the burden of uh, taking care of her. But I, I didn't see any connection between what he does for a living and that storyline. And if there was, if, if that scene you're talking about was an example of what maybe could have been, then yeah, this could have been a much more interesting movie and a unique movie and a less predictable movie, but it wasn't any of that. It didn't even seem like it tried. What did you think of Hanks? So this did make me want, he was fine. He's good. I mean, it's, this is not to say his performance was bad, but it did make me wonder if and when we'll see top tier Hanks again. I thought he was you know? quite good in this. Really? Well, it's not like a, it's not the meatiest role he's had or the Hanksiest role, you know, role he's had. But I thought he was really good at, you know, what the film asked him to do. Sure. If you compare him, and I try not to do this, you compare him to his performance in Greyhound. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> but you compare him to anything else like no, Captain Phillips, Apollo 13, Saving Private Ryan. But I'm I think that's not even talking is, about his castaways in his Philadelphias. Like I think it's but I think it's the subtle. I think what's on on display here is the subtlety. He's doing something. He's doing it's, it's a quite, pretty quiet performance. You know, the sort of Western um, protagonist hero role. We see the quiet hero. And, you know, despite being someone who orates the news. He's he's a rather reserved person and a moral person. He is good in this. You probably won't like this, but I felt that he was good in the same way that I felt Meryl Streep was good in Let Them All Talk. Like it's a good actor acting good. Like, and that's fine. Like a that's good a, actor okay. acting good. You heard it here. For, they're probably yeah. going to put that on the poster. Yep. <laughs> News of the world. Good at Tom Hanks. Good actor acting good. <laughs> and I just think that that was so fine, but like I wasn't overly impressed. It wasn't anything spectacular. And okay. And it just made me wonder. I was like, are 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 Hanks's best days behind him? And, and like, look, he's had an amazing career. If it that's made you wonder the that. Case, but what about fine. what about? I mean, like we've already watched a terrible Hanks movie this year. And this is not it. So don't say that about this. Movie. I'm not. I'm not saying that his like his, this was a bad performance. I'm just saying like are are we are we gonna see a performance from Hanks that we talk about when all is said and done with Hanks? Are we gonna see another one? Like when Hanks' career is over, we're gonna talk about Castaway. We're gonna talk about Saving Private Ryan, Philadelphia, Paul Thirteen. We've done our top five Hanks performances. We might even talk um, about Captain Phillips. And I like that performance a lot too. And I'm I was wondering if that's the last great one and. That's okay if it is. Like, this is a guy who's, like you said, 60-something years old. He's had a 30-year career that's just incredible. And I'm just, I know, I I went into this movie kind of hoping I was, especially after Greyhound, hoping to see, like, a top-tier Hanks performance. And it wasn't that. It doesn't doesn't mean it's bad. It's just, it was good. Good actor acting good. Brilliant. 
Um, let's see what he's got coming up. Bios. That looks. I would bet that was an animated film. Oh no, it's an upcoming American science fiction film starring Tom Hanks, directed by Miguel Sopchik. Chop Sopchnik, who is a TV director. Um, and then he also has Elvis, where he plays <sighs> Colonel Tom Parker. Uh, in the Baz Luhrmann Elvis film that's, I think, uh, supposed to come out next year. Or this year, actually. So Baz Luhrmann Elvis. That, that might be, that might you know, that could be a potential Best Supporting Actor um, nomination. Because I mean, he's like, he, that's like, um, that's like Elvis's manager, right? I don't know really yeah, anything think, about Elvis. Yes, I think I, I just, I don't have as high a hopes of Baz Luhrmann films as I probably did no i mean 15 years ago great uh, gatsby was just atrocious in my opinion but um yeah uh who's playing elvis in that film austin butler from um uh he's the guy from uh from once upon a time in hollywood he plays the tex it's... oh really yeah interesting good for him so helena zangla zangler What's her Zangle. name? Zangle. What'd you yep. think? Uh, so I was expecting a performance similar to something like what we got from Haley Steinfeld in True Grit. Who is, uh, who kind, is of, really kind of good. going in. Who's excellent in that movie, but it's a very scene-stealing kind of new star-making performance that she gives. Well, I also think like and, that role is super impressive. I mean, she's really good in it, but that, that role is really impressive because she's able to deliver that Cohen dialogue as good as anybody else can, which I think is contrasting yep. to what we just recorded, but lost uh, talking about <laughs> Helena Zegler. Yeah. Which is an entirely different type of performance. Very quiet, very reserved. She balances three languages. She employs silence. It's just a very impressive performance. And like I said, I was very much kind of anticipating coming into this podcast and comparing her performance with Hank's performance, asking that inevitable question, did did kind of the newcomer Helena Zengel outact Tom Hanks? And that doesn't feel like a relevant conversation because I think she just embodied a role that was very hard to play and stood out because of it. It wasn't that her performance was stealing scenes. It wasn't that she was outacting Hanks. It was that the two of them ended up working really nicely together because she handled that type of material really well. I agree. Um, and the silence. Let's talk about that. She's just I, like I just think it's incredible what she, what she's able to do. And you mentioned this with silence um, or without lines. And I think like I was thinking about how you know how do parents prepare their kids for a day's shoot, right? Like, I mean, these are 11, 10, 11 year old kids. I think she was yep. 10 or 11 when she filmed this. And I imagine like she probably, they probably run lines with their kids and, and some extent, to some extent they have to give them a little bit of direction and guidance and do it like this. Don't do it like this, etc. But how do you do that with silence? Like a, a child comes in and, and, and they're given action and they don't necessarily know the significance of that. And so I think it takes a really mature performer to be able to take silence and an action instead of dialogue and, and translate that into something that's meaningful and uh, that comes across fluently on screen. And I'd be curious if, so this is based on a, on a novel um, by a woman named Paulette Giles. And I'd be curious if the character is written the same in the novel as it is 
in the movie in terms of how much dialogue and how much she says. I'd like to assume that it is. It just seems like how the story goes. But, you know, Helena Zengel is not uh, an American actress. She's she's had a handful of roles, but it looks like a lot of them are German movies, um, judging by the titles. And I wonder if kind of the, the language barrier that may exist, I don't know how, you know, what it is, but I, I wonder if that helped a little bit, you know, gave Greengrass kind of the opening to say, no, you know what? We don't need that line. Let's just take it out. And as a result, you kind of got these really effective scenes with her not saying anything or maybe just one word or something like that. And I don't want to suggest that like they stumbled upon it by accident or it was a happy accident, but I do wonder if maybe that fact that she's an inexperienced actress that isn't from America or first language isn't English helped create that character. That's a great point. I'm, I'm sure it did. Yeah. I agree. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad we watched this. Are you? I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm glad I watched it. I liked it. I, I I thought it was a good movie. I even like was thinking, you know how we watch these movies and we're like, okay, what, do I, what am I going to say on the podcast? What if I'm not prepared for the question that Chapin has? Yeah. I was like, I'm going to tell him that this movie was good. Like, cause it was good. Yeah, it was good. Nothing really wrong with it, but it's just not, it's just not fixy material. Um, you know, maybe, maybe there's a, a performance in this with Zangle that might get some fixy consideration. Sure. Remains to be seen. Um, you know, $20 to rent, tough pill to swallow, but you know, it's the price we pay to be prepared. Okay. Lee, I wanted to ask you, I had some thoughts, um, on my run slash jog slash walk today about what we could talk about. And I, slash, you know, maybe we slash sit on the couch <laughs> slash slash, uh, come home and fall into a couch and collapse. Um, about like how we could save the theatrical experience, what we could do to change it. We've talked a lot about it and we've, um, uh, we've talked a lot about the negative stuff that we hate about theaters and, and if this will last or what the future has to hold for them. I think we'd want, I think I I speak for the three of us in saying we want it. We, we definitely want the theatrical experience to survive. Um, we want to be able to go to movies often and to see every, anything we can. I don't think we want to see a whole bunch of change. Um, but, it seems like that's inevitable that there that this industry is changing and especially with sort of the the beginning with the pandemic pandemic sort of leading us into a new age i don't think that's something that is um surprising or i don't i i, I won't i don't see that a big change coming down in the next couple of years will, will be a surprise to us but i did have some thoughts and i don't know that i necessarily like agree with them or endorse them but I'm I'm trying to think beyond my comfort zone because I thought a little bit about Nolan and how much we've been criticizing him and just the fact that he he took this unnecessary leap into this area and and where he didn't need to be and and I think that there's just a certain amount of like uh, failure to accept things on these people's parts that that uh, is hurting them and I think has caused anger and people to act in strange ways like this quiet uh english filmmaker who we whose movies are big and loud but was always kind of soft-spoken now is kind of 
in the spotlight in a sort of a negative way. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to think about ways that I can see this changing without it being, uh, exactly what I want it to be. And one of the things I thought about was thinking about Shakespeare. Um, and you know, back in the day, theater was kind of the, the entertainment of the masses, right? Like in, in Shakespeare's time, the old globe theater, the punters would sit there and, in the middle of the theater and they would actually they'd stand most of the time with the cheap seats and they'd crowd into the glo- into the theater and i think there was like dirt on the ground and they sat there and watched three or four hours of shakespeare plays i'm not exactly sure how that went down but uh, i was thinking about that today and then and and I, I was thinking about how it's that's changed you know like now we think of theater as this really expensive thing of this of being kind of high art and if if you go see a play on on broadway and it's it's any anything popular, you're probably going to pay over a hundred dollars. Sometimes those tickets go to $400, you know, it's, and, and I don't mean to make, I don't mean to suggest that it's necessarily a good thing that it's become so expensive for people, but it's different from going to see movies, right? There's, there's less money being made. It's more expensive for, um, theater goers. And so what I thought about was, well, what if the theatrical, theatrical experience went that way? You know, we saw technology kind of change plays and, 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 and theatrical exhibitions of plays go into the sort of niche category. Maybe that's where the theatrical experience is going and maybe making it more expensive or making the experience kind of more special. I'm not exactly sure how you do that, but, but if, you know, if we look at things now, you know, we've got a ton of access to digital, uh, to, to streaming services and movies online, right? Um, and I think that's analogous to the way probably movie movie theaters came in and, and affected theater going. Um, and for the most part, it's getting cheaper and cheaper. You know, you've got how many hours of content on Netflix available to you at $17.99 a month or, you know, the same for Disney Plus for less money or all the streaming services. You just got tons of content. And I was thinking like, okay, well, maybe that's the new, maybe that's the new media of the, of the masses, right? And going to movie theaters is a, is a rarefied experience. It's a little more expensive. It's a little more, uh, exclusive. And it's, I don't know. I don't know how you change the actual experience to make it, you know, make the sales pitch, but I don't know. I, I, that was one way I was thinking. Well, about that. In, in theory, I like that idea too. I can't imagine a scenario where they're, they would look at that business model and, and see, uh, an opening for success. Right. Um, you know, theater is not a thriving industry. Um, it isn't you know, now, I, but 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 broad, there's a lot of money to be made on Broadway. Sure, yes. But I guess the way I'm thinking about it is just kind of like the trickle down. So, like, is are you suggesting that like okay, so most movies come out on a streaming service, but then there's one or two that have a limited release, fifty bucks a ticket. 75 100 bucks a ticket or whatever for like a all-inclusive experience not all-inclusive but like a, a big experience to th- see it in a theater you know you you show up you, you have your tickets at the door you mingle in the lobby a little bit you can get a drink out there you you can't bring drinks into the into the theater you know th- something like that like where it almost it almost mimics the actual you know yeah I see theater experience but i i don't i don't think that's it i don't i mean i think getting people who have seen movies for an average of $10 most of their life to pay $50 for a movie is 
unreasonable. But I do think doubling the price is is something we could talk about. I I think that that is a I think that's logical. I also think it's likely um, mm. that if the average movie ticket becomes twenty dollars, you know, and then you know the the ni- the nicer theater or even like new releases are twenty eight dollars or something like that, like that I think is totally fair for a couple reasons. One, theater chains in particular are putting a lot of money into making sure that their theaters are comfortable, the audience within them notwithstanding. But they're changing things. They're changing the types of concessions they have, the seats they have, the projectors they have. So it's reasonable to raise the price more. And now they've been out of business for what's going to probably be, you know, a year and a half, two years. They can raise the prices. And then independent theaters, they obviously are going to be more expensive because they, you know, are limited on their capacities and things like that. But also they are probably putting forth a better product in terms of how they're presenting the movie, the environment that you're seeing it in. So you pay those people that will go there will pay a premium for that. So I think the the economics of it just makes sense and would be a logical next step. And, you know, we've talked about kind of clearing out the riffraff and stuff like that. I, I don't think that will ever really happen. I think there's always going to be annoying teenagers that go to movies because their parents are trying to get them out of their house. Like streaming is never going to solve that problem. Um, Right. But also, okay. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I do just think that you brought up the point about the arc light. It's more expensive, but you pay for the experience. And I think that that's totally fair. And I, I, I could a hundred percent see, things going in that direction i don't know the dollar amount but what is the average movie ticket right now like i always go on tuesday so it's six dollars i want to say it's like ten dollars like i think that's probably a on average you think i would have guessed higher but oh yeah well maybe i mean it's i mean i never go on like friday and saturday nights anymore and i know it was always hot more then but like for a new release on a friday (laughs) probably uh i don't know fourteen dollars or something like that if it's twice that I, I think they'd be in trouble, but you know, twenty to twenty-five bucks a ticket. <laughs> oh, excuse me, sorry. Maybe it depends on the type of movie too. I mean, like, what about a Pixar film? Can you charge twenty-five bucks a ticket for a Pixar film when you know everybody that goes is going to be like five people because a family's going to try to go? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. But, versus a Marvel movie. Well, you know? would they release a Pixar movie in, in movie theaters? It, are, I mean, is it worth it to see to see a Pixar movie in theaters? Uh, that's a probably not. Yeah, that's a good question. Those movies. I mean, I don't know. I, I at this point, I'll see anything. In the yeah, movie no, theater. that's true. Well, I guess <laughs> what I I would like to see. Okay, let's 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 brainstorm here, and I want to hear your ideas too. But like for me, just selfishly. I want a quiet experience. I want people to be respectful in the movie theater. I don't want texting. I don't want like people to crinkle things, and I want the focus to be on the films. Um, I want the projector to be in top, top, top shape. I want it to be the best projector that's that is available, and I want it to be tuned properly, and I want the sound the same way. And I think there's a deference for a bigger picture, right? The best movie theater in Portland, the biggest screen in Portland, is for some reason at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry and you can go for six bucks and see like, 
you know, a, a second run movie, a movie that's been out for eight weeks or something. And mm-hmm. I don't know why that is, but it's an awesome theater. It's got great sound and it's huge. And for some reason, we're not putting a premium on tickets like that. You know, the, the, there's a little bit of the sort of the IMAX thing that's not really IMAX. It's sort of digital IMAX, which, you know, may or may not be the real thing. But, you know, there's some there's some suggestion that that's something people would pay for. You know, like there's a premium for IMAX tickets and people seem to pay them. Um, so I'd want all that stuff in good working order. I think that's that was what was great about the Arclight. It's like it was like a revelation when I got down there. It's like these especially in the days of film projectors, which we were in when we were down there in 2007 and 2008, most of the things were still on film and those are hard to maintain and you have to spend a lot of money and time and care keeping those up to date. And I'm sure digital ones are easier to do, but still, you still have to take care of them. Um, what about a dining experience with that? What about drinks and stuff like that? So, I mean, I, I like that about the AMC that's over here, the kind of dine-in experience. I hate the like the server comes to you. Yeah, that's I mean, annoying. typically, typically they're not really that much of a pain. Like they, they ask you before. They usually try to get you the stuff for, but you're inevitably going to get interrupted at some point because they're going to bring you the check, and they, they basically want you like paid and closed out before the movie ends, so that like you can then just leave. You don't have to like wait around to try to pay. So, so the, the theater you know, in Portland, you order ahead of time, like at the bar or ticket concessions place, and then they bring it to you, and then that's it. You know. Yeah, so that, to me, I think that's better. I mean, I think the idea behind what they're doing with AMC, they call them the dine-in theaters, is, like, you sit in your seat and, like, you're basically, like, watching a movie while you're waited on. And, like, again, in theory, a good idea doesn't always work as well as they want it to. I don't want to lose that. I think that's kind of a nice luxury about going to watch a movie. You know, I can sit there and eat bad food and drink beer and stuff, and that's fine. I, You know, little things that we've seen at movie theaters like the Arclight that just work. Assigned seats, and a lot of these dining theaters have that too, which is is good. And that seems to be like a, a step that a lot of theater chains have taken. Another thing is just like you you can't go in if you're 10 minutes late for the movie. Like, yeah. sorry, you got to see something else. Like, And I, I don't think a lot of people are running late for the movie and get go in 10 minutes late. What I think that eliminates is the teenagers that – finish their movie and are waiting for a ride and like i mean you can't prevent them from just like hopping into another theater i guess but no but people like are habitually late you know there's plenty of people who are always late and it's just not acceptable you're interrupting people's experience and it's annoying so i think that's a simple thing that can be that can be taken care of i just think that you know, this is why the independent theaters are something we don't want to lose because they will take the time and effort to ensure those things. Some kid making the soon-to-be $15 minimum wage at an AMC is not going to fight with somebody that's 10 minutes late for their movie. No. You know, it, they're just going to go in. It's just going to happen. And so a theater chain is not... That's that's. I don't feel like that's going to be something that's enforced or even implemented. Um you know, the assigned seats you can essentially do when you buy the ticket. Like, nobody actually has to do anything. If people really want to just go sit in a different seat, again, that's something they probably don't have to uh, battle. They don't have to fight that often. But um, anyway, yeah, I don't... Aside from, like, it's just a major overhaul on how theaters function, I don't know that there's a lot of things that can change because, for me, what what interrupts the theater going experience is the company and can't do anything about that. You know? Well, you can't, I mean, you can, if you, 
if you make it a more well, that's what I think intense the, experience. If you, I mean, well, the pricing of the tickets, I think, is the biggest piece that could that could affect that. Right. It, maybe it should be like an optional thing. Like you have you have like three tiers. You can pay like five dollars for the movie, and then that means like anybody will come, anybody can come in. You know, they can bring weapons. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you pay ten dollars, and it's just like okay, it'll be like a medium audience. Or you can pay like fifty bucks, and they give, and then like okay, we there might be like two or three other people in the theater, and we and they have they have signed a waiver to be quiet. Let's do it that way. Okay. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> what? Yeah. What I just said. Oh, anything? But... The multi-tiered payment system. <laughs> yeah. That, okay. Any good ideas? No. Okay, well, you have to have I haven't, some ideas. I haven't thought as much about about it. I mean, I, I think the idea, just in terms of... So we're talking about just to make the theater going. We're not talking about, you know, how studios can function in the streaming world versus theaters. We've I, had it could be any... I, no, I mean, I think it can be... I think I think we want to talk about preserving the theatrical experience, and that can be in whatever uh, manner you think is, 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 is worthwhile. Well... What I've mentioned briefly before is that I, I think that studios need to take a hard look at the movies they have on the docket and, and basically do a little bit of what they've been doing, but just on a grander scale and say, yep, this movie will make more. This movie is more profitable to us in the theater. This movie is more profitable to us on a streaming service and just stick to that. And it'll be a probably a pretty like even 50 50 split. We did that kind of go through all of HBO Max's movies. And I think it was eight to eight on which ones we'd want to see in the theater and which ones we'd want to see at home. And I think in doing that, we will get, you know, a fewer movies bombing in the movie theater. And as a result, more movies that will do well, I think, because there's, you know, more money to go around with less movies in the theater. And we'll also all get to see more movies because there'll be more things streaming. And I just think we in, in that world, we don't lose the theaters. Streaming can continue to evolve. We'll continue to get a lot of content, and I think everyone can win that way. Yeah, you no, know that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, the next big Marvel movie is going to be released in theaters. That's that's the place for that to be. No Time to Die. That should be in theaters. The Matrix Four. That should be in theaters. Judas and the Black Messiah. You know, I'd probably rather see that in the theaters. It looks good, but that's a movie I can watch at home. It's fine. Yeah, more people will watch it. At, at home instead of trying to figure out you know in a normal year uh, uh trying to figure out okay what weekend should we release judas and the black messiah is that an oscar movie should we wait till november and you know or or should we just like release that in may right well i was thinking you know, about like, I, I think that's a great point i was thinking about that which was that was that when you were going back to that comparison of movies versus you know plays a play can only really exist in one place. Like it can exist in one theater and they can have a one showing a night, maybe on Sundays they have two, you know, a matinee and, a, and an evening performance, but that's all they can, that's all they can generate. And in a movie theater, I mean, it's, it's huge because we've got thousands, maybe tens of thousands of movie screens in this country, but there is still a physical limit to how many people can watch a movie or pay to see a movie. Uh, we've probably seen it, with the $354 million opening weekend of Avengers Endgame. But when you're fighting, you know, on, on, on a weekend like that in May, when Avengers is, is I bet, occupied like at least half of the theaters available at the Arclight right. or, or any movie Cineplex, 
you could release a movie like Judas and the Black Messiah on digital and as many people who have an internet connection can watch that movie. You know, yep. there's no limit to who can say it, who can see it. And I think that kind of thinking, like you just described, is really going to innovate things and make and really the people who are going to be thinking proactively are going to be the ones who survive. And the interesting thing is too is I you know, I said you know, when they when they make a movie, they should decide, okay, this is this movie's for this, this movie's for this. The, once upon a time, uh, older listeners will remember if a movie really sucked, it went straight to video. And like right. that was like the death knell for a movie. Okay. That's not really the case anymore. You make a movie, maybe it doesn't come out like the movie you expected it to be. You don't think it's gonna have a lot of success in the theater, you move it to the streaming service. Right. And that can be written into contracts, like that can affect because obviously all that stuff is is uh, have financial ramifications for everybody involved, but that can just all of a sudden that can be boilerplate in a contract to be like, Hey, here's your pay. If this goes to a theater, here's your pay. If it doesn't, and I, I don't want to incentivize making a good movie. Everybody's trying to make a good movie, well, but yeah. you know, I, there's gotta be stuff like that anyway. So, you know, your movie is made, you know, things changed during the production. It didn't turn out to be as grand as you thought it was going to be. It's maybe, not the Oscar uh, movie you thought it was going to be, so we're not going to release it in theaters in November. But you know what? We're going to put it on HBO Max on Christmas Day. So when you were saying and, that, I th- the movie I immediately thought of was The Lone Ranger because it got, I'm sure they had to pay Johnny Depp a small fortune to be in it, and I'm sure they promised him a bunch of back end points. And internationally, it barely made what it cost, meaning it lost a ton of money, right? Yeah. So do you think, like, Disney, who made that film, knew the day, knew like weeks before it came out, this is probably not going to be. I've never seen it actually, but I haven't either. This is not going to be the film we think it's going to be. What I mean is that they have to. You couldn't have, you you could not have known, or you you know. Did Gore Verbinski? Of course he did. Yeah. Who is good? I I mean, he's he's done some good stuff. So if you, if you take. I mean that that's not a film you would ever want to do, but but if you look at that movie, and you realize that they probably spent another hundred million dollars putting it out in theaters and getting it internationally and 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 advertising it, just so that Johnny Depp could take a, a much smaller, albeit, piece of that box office return. Like they're not getting. I mean, they're making a little bit of money, I guess, but you know you're spending. There's a certain amount of sunk cost you have to invest to release a movie internationally. And if those contracts, like we said, are are set up so that they're getting giving these creative people, the actors and directors, pieces of the of the of the final theatrical gross, like that that isn't worth paying for. I mean, essentially you the studios are paying to release this movie so that other people can get it. Whereas if you release that on Disney Plus and you know, didn't spend that. I don't know. I'm not sure about the financials here, but, but yeah, I don't know how the economics can work because I don't know how releasing it on a streaming service makes you enough money to on a movie like that or something to. No, I mean it doesn't. I don't know that it does. I don't know that it does. And we don't have. I don't think we yet have a. And and maybe I'm wrong, but there isn't like a. I don't think people are paying. Like, how many people do you think rented News of the World this weekend? I'd love to find out. Maybe there's some some information available, but. Um, I don't know that people are like in the habit of paying to rent movies online that you don't own. Like, like we don't have like a, I mean, I do it all the time, but I don't know that a lot of other people are. 
Well, it, we also do it for four dollars as opposed to twenty. Right. I don't. I mean, so Amazon sort of. You'll be very proud. I rent. I rented this on on Apple just oh, just for you. Um, Thank it, you. It literally was the only reason I did it. But on Amazon Prime, the way that they advertise these movies, um, are they they basically have a little banner underneath that says early access. And they've uh, been doing it since the spring. They say early access, theatrical release, early access, twenty dollars to rent. Um, you know, promising young woman is another one that's available under that tag right now. And they've been doing it since I think like Emma and the Way Back came out in the fall. Um, so they're still doing it consistently for a, nearly a year now. There's been a few movies at any given time with that little heading. So it must be doing okay. Like people must be well, watching. I, them. I mean, it's it's no it's it's no dust. It's no what is it, what am I trying to say? It doesn't cost Amazon anything if it doesn't. You know, they're just putting it on there, and they're going to put it on there anyways when it's going to be right. When but it's the rent. the studio, it's clear. If it, I mean, they they would stop giving these movies early if they weren't going to make any money on. It. I guess something's better than nothing. Which, yes, they don't have any theatrical experience to do that. so. Um, well, Tenet's been at the top of that list for since it's it's still number one. So, we'll but see. you can rent Tenet now for you don't have to buy it. Anymore. Nice. First, you had to buy it. Okay. So well, wish, maybe wish, we can wish continue we waited this. And I could have rented it. All right. All right. All right. We can continue this conversation with Jeremy sometime. But I think that was good. Um, well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I've been Chapman Hemingway. Lee is here as well. Uh, we hope Jeremy will be back next week. Lee, do we know any idea what we're going to do next week? I, I know that um, Nomad Land, the front runner for Best Picture and maybe some Fixie Awards, is coming out in February. February 19th, 19th. on Hulu, which is great news. Okay. Um, and uh, so we'll have to find some more things to talk about in the meantime. Yeah, we still got a few new. I mean, Promising Young Woman is available to rent for $20. Um, I watched One Night in Miami, which is on Prime. Um Okay. Recommend that to you guys. So we we've got some stuff. A few more movies coming out on the 29th, I think, available on VOD or on uh, streaming services. All right. Thank you very much for listening. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.